0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, Lord, we are vessels standing before you today. And some of our personalities see ourselves as half full and some of us see us as half empty. But however we see ourselves today, Lord, our vessels need to be filled with your Spirit. So, Lord, we're asking you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Because it is through the Spirit that we can discern the things that the Word of God shares in the Spirit of prophecy. So bless us, Lord, with the fullness of your Spirit and anoint the lips of our dear brother as he shares with us today from his heart and we thank you for it in Jesus name amen good morning okay there's supposed to be a title slide and i don't know why it's not showing up i guess we'll we'll go without it the uh, the title was supposed to be showing up the enemy uh, sometimes in in some of my presentations i've used a An illustration, which not everyone catches as an illustration right off the bat. Um, It is entirely fictitious, so I'll I'll, I'll, spare you the necessity of figuring it out for yourself. But uh, I'll explain to them. I said, you know, you don't really know me because I'm I'm a stranger here, but um, one of my little hobbies is, is weightlifting. And I can actually bench press 400 pounds. And occasionally I get very naive people who say, wow, And occasionally I get more knowledgeable people who go, (laughs) because there's something about my physique that probably does not look like the kind of guy who can bench press 400 pounds. But if you laughed at my claim, wouldn't it be sweet to just do it? (laughs) There's nothing quite so satisfying, perhaps, as doing what they said you couldn't do. It's a very convincing argument, actually. How are you going to argue with it? Okay, so that's the idea of showing up the enemy. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I don't think that uh, Christ would uh, enjoy the, the kind of human emotion of ha, ha, ha. But nonetheless, the key word there is actually showing. Showing. The enemy. Okay, so we left off yesterday with this list of Satan's accusations. And I left you with a question. Suppose you were God, what are you going to do now? If you study formal logic, they have what they call fallacies. And for whatever reason, they've given some of these really cutesy little names. And one of the cutesy fallacies is poisoning the well. Now, it works like this. Let's just pretend for the moment that I am candidate A running for, I don't care, let's say governor of Michigan. And over here, I am candidate B running for governor of Michigan. And so we have, you know, one of these civic evening, you know, forum type of things, and and we're going to have a debate, see? So candidate A gets to speak first, and he says... Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so glad that you came out. It shows that you care about the welfare of your state, and I'm just, it's a wonderful thing. Michigan's a great state. But before we go any further, I have to tell you something. My opponent here is a notorious liar. You can't believe anything he says. That's poisoning the well. Now, when candidate B gets his turn to talk, what's the first thing he's going to want to say? I am not a liar. Whereupon candidate A, who's supposed to be quiet right now, breaks the rules and says, he just lied. Can you trust him? You don't know. You don't know. Once the question of honesty has been tarnished, the well has been poisoned, and God's well had been poisoned. henceforward anything that god had to say was of limited value well so what would god do about it you know we like I, I think i mentioned this yesterday you know god has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing and yet when it came to his problem there was only one way and it was incredibly expensive he <laughs> only had one way. What's interesting is that when Ellen White talks about this, she actually spends more time talking about I don't know, but that's literally true, but she spends quite a bit of time talking about what God couldn't do. How shall the universe know that Lucifer is not a safe and just leader? To their eyes, he appears right. Just stop and think about that for a moment. To their eyes, he appears right. They cannot see as God sees beneath the outward covering. They cannot know as God knows. Then to work to unmask him and make plain to the angelic host that his judgment is not God's judgment, that he has made a standard of his own and exposed himself to the righteous indignation of God would create a state of things which must be avoided. But God can do anything. Well, not now he can't. This must be avoided. God desired that a change take place and that the work of Satan be brought out in its genuine aspect, but the exalted angel standing next to Christ was opposed to the Son of God. The underworking was so subtle that it could not be made to appear before the heavenly host. It's a thing. It really was. Some things God can't do. Satan could not be presented to the universe at once in his real character. His crooked course must be made—excuse uh, me—must be allowed to continue until he should reveal himself as an accuser, a deceiver, a liar, and a murderer. God could not say, "Lucifer is." An accuser, a deceiver, a liar, and a murderer. Oh, he could say it. That wasn't going to convince anyone. I, You know, that sounds pretty drastic, but, but you know what? I really like that. Because what it tells me is that God didn't create easily manipulated population. <laughs> he created a, a population, a universe full of thinkers. Unlike some worlds I know, (laughs) where the population seems to be, you know, um, how would I put this politely, Um, seems to be valued for its ability to be manipulated. Satan had disguised himself in a cloak of falsehood, and for a time it was impossible to tear off the covering so that the hideous deformity of his character could be seen, he must be left to reveal himself in his cruel, artful, wicked works. Now, that, look at that second line there. Impossible. Impossible. That's not a term that we often associate with God. <laughs> right? Notice also the last line, or the last sentence, I guess. Notice that word Must. Has to. Required. (laughs) God can do anything He wants. No, He can't. He must do some things. That seems kind of weird, but that's the way it was. God's purpose is to place things upon an eternal basis of security. Just remember, before sin, it wasn't eternally secure. Because sin came up, right? God's purpose is to place things upon an eternal basis of security. Time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his government. The heavenly universe must see work out the principles which Satan declared were superior to God's principles. God's order must be contrasted with Satan's order. The corrupting principles of Satan's rule must be revealed. The principles of righteousness expressed in God's law must be demonstrated as unchangeable, perfect, and eternal. You've all heard these ideas before. I'm sure this is nothing brand new, but notice these words. God's in a box. And notice the nature of the requirements. Satan had to develop his principles. The universe must see the contrast, right? Uh, God's order must be contrasted. Satan's rule must be revealed. God's law must be demonstrated. Everything that needs to happen here falls into the category of, I don't know, I'd call it school, <laughs> education. The universe needs to learn some stuff, and some stuff you can only learn by experience or by, by watching at least. It, it's, a, it's a process of clarification, of revelation, of, of, of making clear issues. That is the nature of God's response to Lucifer's accusation. All God can do, all God is trying to do, is to clear things up. Let people see the reality. The revelation of God's character, which is what Lucifer was impugning here, is in fact the only weapon in heaven's arsenal. Everything is based on, stems from, flows directly out of, the revelation of God's character. And notice, as far as Satan is concerned, the damage was all self-inflicted. He would reveal himself as a murderer. He would reveal himself as a liar. He He was shooting himself in the foot. Satan's failure, however even if he completely, uh, word, embarrassed himself, would not necessarily mean that God was off the hook. <clears throat> have you ever uh, listened to a political debate where each candidate is telling everyone that the other guy's is terrible, miserable, rotten, no good for whatever reasons? And have you ever stopped to wonder... What if they're both right? <laughs> it's a risk. <laughs> just just say it. Okay. It's a risk. Just because Satan demonstrated that he was a, a rotten guy didn't get God off the hook. God had to respond himself. And the universe knew that. The unfallen world saw that the character of God could be vindicated only through this trial and conflict of the two forces. The attributes of God must be made to appear. Of the stability of his government, there must be no question. You know, I I find it so amazing because as I read different comments from Ellen White about the universe, sometimes they seem so smart and sometimes they seem kind of slow and it's intriguing it's just intriguing i'll just leave it at that okay um <clears throat> so god has to defend himself how is he going to do that how is he going to get everyone in the entire universe to want him to be the the monarch the, the leader the you know, whatever title, want him to be God, right? How is he going to do that? Well, the simple answer is he had to convince everyone that his government was the only one they wanted. Okay. <laughs> That's a pretty tall order. And what if there were other ideas out there someplace, right? Some countries have like 15 or 20 Political parties, right? United States, you know, yeah, yeah. There's, a, I don't know, there's, a, there's a variety of other parties, but basically, it's a two-party system around here. Okay, up in Canada, it's a little more fun to watch. They've got a, it's more or less a three-party system up there. Things get a little bonkers up there sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's enjoyable. Um, but so, so, what's to prevent someone out in the universe from watching all this and thinking about it, and then out of all the gazillions of unfallen beings, what's the chances that someone would say, wow, you know, Satan's plan was really messed up. But I still think there's some problems with God's ideas. Here's where I think we ought to be. Right? And Satan's here. God's here. Maybe we ought to be here. Or or here, or here, or here, or here, or here, or here. Yeah. How are you going to straighten that mess out? The only way to get past that is to be willing to do more, to go further for the good of those gazillions of citizens of the universe. And how do you suppose God's going to do that? This is a key statement right here. Notice this one. No verbal description could reveal God to the world. Partially because of the honesty question and partially because some things you just can't describe well enough. No verbal description could reveal God to the world. Through a life of purity, a life of perfect trust and submission to the will of God, a life of humiliation, such as even the highest seraph in heaven would have shrunk from, God himself must be revealed to humanity. You remember probably, um, what is it, Story of Redemption, maybe, or Spirit Prophecy, Volume 1, one of those earlier writings, where Ellen White talks about how you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, God and Jesus had a consultation and they came out and they announced a plan that, that Jesus was going to be incarnated and live and die. And the angel said, no, 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 let me do it. They didn't know what they were talking about. Read the statement. The highest seraph in heaven would have shrunk from if they'd understood what Jesus was going to go through. Not to mention the fact that they couldn't do the job anyhow. This is a big deal. So Jesus says, God says, this is what I'm willing to do. Anyone else want to do the same thing? Anybody else going to do more? And there were no volunteers. Notice again this statement. This is a matter of revealing, of showing, of clarifying, right? God must be revealed to the world. A verbal description could not do it. God himself must be revealed to humanity. Okay. Um, one of the hottest areas of medical science these days is a fascinating uh, field known as neuroplasticity. It means kind of switching nerves around, okay? The, the plasticity, the, the ability to change how nerves work. They've done some really, really amazing things and found out that you can kind of rewire the brain in some ways that they never anticipated just a few years ago. That's what God's doing. (laughs) He's way ahead of the game, of course. That's what God's doing with the revelation of the character of God. He wants to correct our perception of Himself. He wants to rewire our brains. Let's see how He's going to do that. Well, okay, so I've, I hit myself, this slide is not seeing how we're going to do that, but seeing what would happen if we don't, okay? Without the correct knowledge of God, the human family would be divested of all divine strength. With false attributes kept before the mind as belonging to God, the human family would be the dupes of satanic lies and the subjects of satanic agencies and could be practiced upon, and he could practice upon their credulity with success. This is a fun paragraph for an English teacher. We got some great words in here. (laughs) Vocabulary is fun. Second line down, right in the middle. Does everybody know what divested means? Taken away. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, it's related to invest. It's kind of the opposite of invest. But it's to take it away. They would be... Well, we would just say they would have all divine strength taken away from them with the wrong understanding of God, right? What do we say? Without the correct knowledge of God? Okay. Divested of all divine strength. That's not where we want to be. Just, you know, you know that. Okay. Drop down to the fourth line. The human family would be the dupes of satanic lies. What is a dupe? Not a common word these days. Think of it like this. Do you know what the word duplicity means? It's related to our word double. To be duplicitous means to have two faces. To one group I say pleasant things. To another group I say other things that are pleasant here but wouldn't be pleasant there. Yeah, that would be a politician. Um... I'm just a little bit cynical when it comes to the the human ability to govern ourselves. You know, it's not their fault. I'm not sure I could do a better job. I'm just saying, you know, human beings, we're not good at governing. We've got to learn that. Anyhow, a duplicitous person is one who is two faced. And anyone who is fooled by a duplicitous person is a dupe. Got that? Okay. We would be the dupes of satanic lies in the subject of satanic ages, and he could practice upon their credulity. Well, okay, there's another good word. What's credulity? Today we would probably use the near synonym gullibility. Yeah, we'd believe him too much. Okay, that's what happens if we have the incorrect knowledge of God. I'm thinking that's a important issue. Yeah, I don't know, just... Seems that way to me. How much misconception does it take to harm us? Is this a matter of just kind of generally getting, yeah, getting the right idea? Or is this a matter of getting every detail right? How important was this issue of revealing the character of God? How important was that issue to Jesus? <clears throat> Jesus came to earth to teach men how to live a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice and how to carry out practical religion in their daily lives. He labored constantly for one object. All his powers were employed for the salvation of men, and every act of his life tended to that end. Okay, so this is, this is a lead-up quotation, but I want you to notice one thing here, just a little kind of little logic course you know, a major premise, minor premise, conclusion, right? Um, what, what would be true? All circles are round, this is round, therefore it's a circle, right? Okay? Something like that. Um, Jesus labored, labored constantly for one object, right? All his powers were employed for the salvation of men. Everything he did was for the salvation of men. Now go back up to the beginning. Jesus came to teach men how to live a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Why would he teach us how to live a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice? Because it's necessary for our salvation. Everything he did was for the salvation of men, and he knew, he had to teach us how to live lives of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Okay? Okay. That was the goal, you know, one way of expressing the goal, but how did he go about it? What was the method? The great object that brought Christ to the earth was to reveal the Father. God is love. This was the great truth that Christ came to the world to reveal. The object of Christ's mission to the world was to reveal the Father. In all his ministry, all his self-denial and self-sacrifice, Christ's object was to reveal God to the world. I could give you another 20 of those type of statements. Christ exalted the character of God, attributing to him the praise and giving to him the credit of the whole purpose of his own mission on earth. Now, I'll just kind of stop there for just a second. English teacher kicks back in. What's that thing right after earth? Class. What is that? What is that? Funny looking thing there. It's it's a dash. Anybody know what kind of dash it is? It's an m-dash. How great is that? Now for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, that's m as in money and monkey and major and that kind of an m, okay? And an m-dash is called an m-dash because it's the same width as a capital m. A little typography lesson here for you, okay? They also have n-dashes by the way. N-dashes are the width of a capital N, and they're used for a different purpose. They go in between numbers, like 5 to 20, 5-20. That's an N-dash, not an M-dash, and not a hyphen. Please, let's get this straight. Okay, so, (laughs) but this is an M-dash, and what do M-dashes do? M-dashes set off parenthetical insertions. You could do the same thing with a pair of parentheses, but that's more of an interruption. You could do the same thing with a pair of commas, but that's less interruption. The M dash comes in between. It just kind of stops you enough to get your attention, but doesn't stop you dead in your tracks like a period or like a parenthesis or something like that. And that parenthetical insertion in this case is an apostrophe clause, which is to say it's a restatement of the noun clause that just came before it. Okay? So, the whole purpose of his own mission to earth. What's the noun? The mission to earth. That's the clo- uh, yeah, you know, that's, yeah, to earth is a preposition, but don't worry about it. It's his mission. We're going to redefine mission right after that M dash to set man right through the revelation of God. That's the mission. The whole purpose of his mission to earth is to set man right through the revelation of God. Well, I thought he was here to save sinners. Yeah, that's the set man right part. This is, this, I, I find this actually amazing and, a, and a, little bit, a little bit strange sometimes since we seldom think of salvation in, in this way. But Ellen White says it over and over. Here we see that the whole purpose of Christ's mission to earth was to set men right and it was all to be accomplished by helping us see what God is like. We, we, we don't often see that revelation as being the active agent in the regeneration of humanity. But it is. One more thing. Right at the very end of it all, you see those dots? Anybody know what those are? It's an ellipsis. Now, if you look carefully, you'll see there are four dots. Sometimes there's only three dots. You use three dots if you don't go past the end of a sentence. If you go past the end of a sentence, then you have to have four to pick up the period at the end of that sentence that you went past. Okay? The point is that the paragraph goes on. When the object of his mission was attained, M dash, restatement of the same thing again. The object of his mission was attained, the revelation of God to the world. The Son of God announced that his work was accomplished and the character of the Father was made manifest to men. Here's my question When was that announcement? What was that announcement? It is finished. The revelation of the character of God to men could never be complete without the cross. Because there's something very special about someone who's willing to die for you. Jesus, again we have this object of his mission phrasing, right? There were lots of objects of his mission, so to speak, but they were all accomplished, through the revelation of the character of God. And, and when Jesus came to reveal the character of his Father, he pushed it to the absolute limit. It's, I, I, just, I find this precision incredible. God sent his Son into the world to reveal, so far as could be endured by human sight, the nature and attributes of the invisible God. You know, if you read Desire of Ages, every now and then you run across this phrase where divinity flashed through humanity, right? Like when he walks into the temple and he picks up that little whip and he stood at the top of the steps, he wasn't smacking anybody around or anything, he's just standing there. But his gaze sweeps over the temple court and everyone's attention is fixed on him and divinity flashed through humanity and it scared the socks off him. And they ran, I just say here, so far as could be endured by human sight? I think, right? And those, those few occasions when divinity flashed through humanity, you know, I, I don't know whether it was Jesus Himself or God the Father, I'm not sure, but somebody was turning the dial up a little bit higher than, than was comfortable. <laughs> they could not endure it. Christ revealed all of God that sinful human beings could bear without being destroyed. <laughs> You know, when you, when you jump in the car, it's, it's, it's great to know where the gas pedal is. It's probably a good idea to know where the brake is, too. I find this amazing, you know, that, that Jesus could push it right to the absolute limit and not go over the line. Christ is the perfect representation of the Father. His life of sinlessness lived on this earth in human nature is a complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character of God. We'll come back to that thought. Um, But... Let's see, where am I going next? Okay, yeah. The perfect representation, that's the part I want to focus on right now. Christ is the perfect representation of the Father. His job was to reveal the Father. And so... He did it perfectly, right? Had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, veiling his glory and humbling himself that that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed in unfolding its record of his own condescending grace. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God. Insight, in hearing, in effect, it is the voice and movements of the Father. Actually, Jesus kind of said the same thing, right? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So, three years? You haven't figured that out. That was very disappointing to Jesus. Jesus could not express in words the understanding of man, the love of the Father. He could only say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God had a problem he was having to deal with. The problem was words. Even Jesus' words, even the most famous verse in the Bible, words weren't enough. Jesus could not express in words. Nothing wrong with words. I mean, you know, some words at least. There's nothing wrong with preaching the gospel, right? There's nothing wrong with quoting John 3.16. He just doesn't finish the job, that's all. And fortunately, we have not finished the paragraph. But he did express the love of God in his actions. What a fascinating idea. Do something, instead of just talk about it. This is probably why Jesus, being wise, understood how things work. Worked, I should say. And so, you know, if he were an investment counselor, he would say, this is what you need to do to get the most bang for your buck. Right? Right? He understood this process, and that's why he did this. The Savior of the world devoted more time and labor to healing the afflicted of their maladies than to preaching. Nothing wrong with preaching. I occasionally do it. It's not to say there's nothing wrong with my preaching. There's lots wrong with my preaching, but that's okay. We'll go on. (laughs) What strikes me as odd here is how little we focus on these, these matters. The revelation, the necessity of action to make that revelation. How fragmented our ideas are of of Christ's work. We emphasize the sacrifice of the cross, rightly so, but too often we see it as simply some sort of an abstract payment for sin. And we fail to recognize its role in what Ellen White called the whole purpose of Christ's mission to earth. The revelation of the Father. It's a cause and effect thing. It's reality. Please don't take offense. I don't mean this to be out of line, but I occasionally hear descriptions of the plan of salvation that I affectionately refer to as spiritual fairy dust. Do you know how... Superstition. What's what's the defining characteristic of superstition? Right, is the inability to trace between cause and effect. Right. So, let's see if I can remember my superstitions here. Uh, a black cat walks across in front of me, so I have bad luck. Wow, that's fascinating. Not sure exactly why, but hey, it's the way it works. Right. I broke a mirror, so what is it? Seven years? Seven years bad luck? Right? Something like that. Not sure exactly why, but it works that way. Maybe. What's the thing with the salt? Is that good luck or bad luck? Anybody know? You throw salt over your shoulder, isn't that something? Or am I just making that one up? That's. If you spill salt, the... the closest I could come with that is if it... you said it was good luck. Okay, I was thinking it was bad luck, and the only way I could figure that is that there's some really big guy and I throw salt over my shoulder and get in his eyes and he beats me up. That would be bad luck. I could understand that one, (laughs) okay? But the defining characteristic of superstition is that there's no link between cause and effect. It's not cause and effect. It's superstition and happenstance if it happens. God doesn't work that way. This is why he could illustrate the truths of the kingdom of God with all the things of nature, because the things of nature work on cause and effect. You know, it's interesting, when you read, Ellen White often, you know, cautions parents especially. She'll say things like, you know, it's, it's not a good idea to try and raise kids in the city. It's much better if you can get the kids out in the country. And, and she'll give a list of, of the objectionable features of the city. And it's really interesting because only in, I'd say, the last 10 to 15 years has science been validating many of those things. One thing she said is there's, there's hustle and bustle of the city. And you know what? They found that if you live in an environment where there's constant noise, it does damage to your nervous system. Maybe you want to do, not do that. Okay. She speaks of the impure air. Well, that's easy to understand. You're breathing smog or whatever else all day long. It's not going to be good for your lungs and anything that's connected to your lungs, which would probably be the rest of your body. Uh, But the one that really intrigues me is, she says, the artificiality of city life. (coughs) I wondered about that. I mean, you know, I mean, if this, that's a block of wood, that seems real. If that was in the country and that block of wood was in the city, I'd say, yeah, they both look pretty real to me. It took me a long time to come up with any idea as to really what she meant about artificiality of city life. <clears throat> and this is a thus saith Dave, so, you know, whatever, okay? This <laughs> is just my idea. But the best I've been able to come up with is that the artificiality consists in, largely, in human relations. Okay? And specifically, the one place I can best illustrate this is work. You know, in this, in in a city job, I can show up to work and slough off and the boss will still pay me. Try doing that on the farm. (laughs) You slough off on the farm. The boss won't pay you at all. (laughs) Everything just died. That's why my wife's not here with me. She's back home taking care of the orchard and the garden because you walk away this time of year, everything's dead. You can't do that. How did I get on that? I'm not sure. It was interesting, but let's go on. (laughs) Um... There was Oh, yeah, superstition. There's reality. There's cause and effect. That's that's what I was trying to point out. Let's go on. Jesus' method. A little more on this. Christ came to this world for no other purpose than to display the glory of God that man might be uplifted by its restoring power. If somehow you have missed the cause and effect relationship of Christ's revelation of the Father to the uplifting and the restoring of humanity... I invite you to focus your attention on him. Does that make sense? You with me? If you have been, if you grew up with a concept of God's plan to save sinners, that was a spiritual fairy dust concept where you just sprinkle the dust and everything's good. Yay! It doesn't work that way. (laughs) It works through reality. It works through cause and effect. Christ came to this world for no other purpose than to display the glory of God. Are you spending time looking, thinking about the character of God? If you are not, I invite you to. It's your only chance. Take it. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> Let's go on. Christ revealed God to his disciples to his disciples, in a way that performed in their hearts a special work such as he has long been urging us to allow him to do in our hearts. Last meeting, I don't want to misrepresent this, I believe Pastor Holland was citing a statistic, I think it was about Adventists. Anybody remember what percentage of Adventists read the Bible more than once a week? Am I right? Was that Adventist or was that Christian? I, I, I don't want to misrepresent. It, it wasn't an encouraging statistic, whatever it was. <laughs> Read your Bible. Read the Spirit of Prophets. Saturate your mind with the character of God. That's what Jesus came for. In passing here, we need to notice one particular aspect of Christ's revelation of the Father, overall, his life. It will help us out here. This is the way Jesus chose Jesus. To deal with Judas. This particular statement comes from a time late in Jesus' ministry. Had Christ unmasked Judas, this would have been urged as a reason for the betrayal. And though charged with being a thief, Judas would have gained sympathy even among the disciples. The Savior reproached him not and thus avoided giving him an excuse for his treachery. Wow. I wonder which disciple would have, would have felt sympathy for Judas after he'd been convicted as a thief. Christ did not unmask Judas. It would have created a condition which must be avoided, just like Lucifer. Jesus did say quite a few things like this, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he never said that about Judas. Yesterday we looked at this statement. The originator of sin worked with all his deceptive powers and the Lord permitted this rebellion to develop before anything was done to save the angelic host from apostasy. Remember I said that when I read that, I was I was appalled, I was offended. It made God look really, really bad. In my feeble, darkened mind. <laughs> I didn't understand that statement until I read the one about Judas. And then finally a little ray of light shone in, I got a little bit smarter, maybe. Jesus' treatment of Judas may strike us as odd. He just let him go. Let him do his thing, right? Not so much because of the way it affected Judas, but doesn't it seem like Jesus missed a whole lot of opportunities to help the other 11 disciples figure out what was going on with the apostasy right in their midst? 11 disciples. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus says, What thou doest, do quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves, and they say, I don't know, I guess he's going to go buy some crackers or something. Why didn't Jesus warn them? What's important here is that this circumstance helps us understand both the far distant past with Lucifer and what I hope is our near future. Jesus faced the same problem that, that we had here with Lucifer. He faced the same problem with Judas. Um, okay, I guess I talked about that. I'd forgotten that was going to be on the bottom of the slide there. Yeah. How shall the universe know that Lucifer is not a safe and just leader? To his eyes, he appears right. So work to work on masking would create a state of things which must be avoided. Same situation with, with, with Judas. Right? Remember the, the disciples brought Judas to Jesus and said he, he'd make a really good disciple. Get this guy. Okay. It turns out that both both with Lucifer in heaven and with Judas on earth, Jesus had done all that could be done up to that point in time for the angelic host and for the loyal disciples. To save them apostasy, he'd already done everything that could be done up to that time. What had he done? He had demonstrated the love, the wisdom, and the power of God. And everything that he'd done. The only thing that could save either the angels or the disciples was faith in God, faith in Christ. They didn't have the understanding. They could not walk by sight. They must walk by faith or they would fall. The only thing that could save them was faith. What Lucifer lost, remember? God said, please do this. Lucifer said, no, that's better. He lost his faith in God's wisdom or his love. What Lucifer lost is the only thing that could save the disciples. It's the only thing that could save the angels. And it was all by faith. This is the righteousness by faith kind of faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world kind of faith. This is the whatsoever is not of faith is sin kind of faith. Faith is a big deal. And faith in God is a simple matter. It's confidence in God. It was all a part of the only plan that could successfully address the problem at hand. That problem, the big problem, the problem that threatened not only our world, but the entire universe of God's creation, was Satan's accusations against the government of heaven, right? Christ's life of sinlessness lived on earth in human nature is a complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character of God. What I want you to see here is that God is moving in a methodical, categorical manner. He's walking down through the stream of time, ticking off accusations as he goes. this This is not a haphazard operation. This is planned. This is meticulous. When the object of his mission was attained, the revelation of God to the world, the Son of God announced, it is finished, right? We looked at that already. Every act of Jesus' life had been calculated to inspire his disciples' faith in him. Up to the time of Judas' apostasy, right? That was, that faith was, and would continue to be their only safety, and so he didn't say a word about Judas. Remember, words can only do so much. Jesus says, Judas, you're a thief. Judas says, Jesus, you misunderstand. You're misrepresenting me. And the disciples go, huh? Very bad idea. He didn't do it. Words can only do so much. Instead, he did the one last thing he could do to get them and us to trust him. And that's the second quote we already clicked up on the screen there. He died. (laughs) Will you trust him now? Will you trust someone who has infinite wisdom, infinite power, and infinite love, and he he wants to help you? Will you trust him? Can you think of a good reason not to? No. But I can give you thousands of bad reasons. I've tried plenty of them. (laughs) The world's tried plenty of them. I want to make this about as stark as I can. There is no good reason not to trust God. It doesn't matter what he says to do. Trust him anyhow. Jesus modeled this for us. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Okay. So now, in our stream of time, after the crucifixion, let's take a look at the scorecard. How is the great controversy coming along? These are the accusations. Remember these? God said the only way to deal with these accusations was through the process of demonstration. and it was going to take some time. Okay, fair enough. So, how was that working out? How did things look at the time of, say, Christ's ascension? So, Gethsemane, Calvary, Resurrection, that's all just recent past here. Well, okay. Take a look at the say the first one there. Angels are holy by nature and wise enough to govern themselves, so they don't need God's law. Now, suppose you are well, I always use Gabriel as the example because he's the only individual whose name I really know up there. But Gabriel has lots of friends. So suppose you are Gabriel or one of his friends. You're looking on from that perspective. How does argument number 1 look in your sight at this point? <laughs> Not real good. Angels are holy by nature. We could never do anything wrong. You just murdered the innocent son of God. And you're still in possession of angelic nature. I don't think that's a guarantee. Number two, God was unfair when he exalted Jesus above Lucifer. Remember, Jesus has some good points, I've got some good points. Overall, I think I'm the better pick. You think so now? Lucifer, we don't, because we just saw what you did. So I would suggest that arguments one and two are pretty much toast. Number three, God is selfish. Yeah, right, after the cross. You're going to make that argument. God is unloving and revengeful. Lucifer, this is not working. Lucifer, please, get out of here. Five and six, you know, a little different. Maybe here, God's law is defective and needs to be changed. We're going to take both these together. Neither angels nor human beings can obey God's law. You know what? Jesus had just bench pressed four hundred pounds. The technical—I yeah, I don't know if they would do this in heaven. I don't want to misrepresent anything, but the, the technical term for doing that is na 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you said I couldn't, and I just did. Now, you know, I, I, I think I get probably an inappropriate joy out of that. I don't. I, 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 I think I fall short of Christ's attitude right there. I have to say that. I wish I. I wish I could accurately represent Him. You know, I, I imagine trying to be serious about this now, which I probably should have a moment ago. Jesus was probably crying for Lucifer as he did it. You know, it's a fascinating account. Uh, again, one of those early writing type of things. Maybe story of redemption or something. Just after Lucifer's fall, he's kicked out of heaven and he's sitting around and he's thinking and he's feeling kind of depressed because things are not working out so well out here as he thought they were going to. And remember, there's a, there's a story as the angel going past and Lucifer flags him down and says, hey, 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 come here, come here, come here. I want to talk to Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus comes out to talk to Lucifer. And Lucifer says, you know, I, I messed up. I really messed up. I'll go back. I'll be good. I'll, 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 I'll do everything I'm supposed to. I'll just, you know, just take my job back and, and we'll, all, we'll all be good again. And Ellen White says that Jesus wept for Satan's woe. But had to tell him as the mind of God that the seed of rebellion was still in him. And it would not be safe to take him back into the city. And he could never come back to heaven. But he wept for Satan's woe. I'm trying to learn how to do that. I'm afraid I'm still a little too much in the side. Well, five and six, I would suggest, are pretty much gone. After the cross, Lucifer's first six accusations didn't make any sense to anyone. Off of this planet, there were still a lot of people who didn't understand things down here. But in the rest of the universe, it had taken 4,000 years, but now everything had changed. Even Lucifer knew. the pivot point of all history had just pivoted. 4,000 years, God had waited. It may seem like a long time to wait before responding to Satan's accusations, but it was the fullness of time. The perfect moment, the first moment that earth and all the unfallen worlds were prepared to see and recognize the truth about Lucifer. Here's the statement. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. This is Desire of Ages 761 in the chapter, It is finished. Now, some fascinating things to note here. Third and fourth lines. He had revealed himself as a murderer. Uh, what about Cain and Abel? <laughs> I mean, it's like Cain killed Abel, man. That's murder. Didn't Satan get any credit for that? It had been 4,000 years. I'm guessing there were quite a few murders during that time. Didn't any of that attach to Satan? How could he just now reveal himself as a murderer? And this is where we need to start seeing the difference between apples and oranges again. You've got to make some distinctions along the way. There's some categorical assessments that need to go on. This was the first time in all of history, the last time too, by the way, that an innocent being died. All the deaths before that, murder or otherwise, Lucifer had the perfect dodge. He could say, you know, don't blame me. It's God's law that says all sinners have to die. You, You may remember I tried to get him to change that. Don't blame me. He couldn't say that with Jesus. Jesus wasn't a sinner. And Lucifer killed him anyhow. He'd crossed a line there for the first time. He had revealed himself as a murderer. And notice that word sympathy. Evidently, angels in heaven sympathized with Lucifer. For 4,000 years. Now, I should point out, there are two kinds of sympathy. There's the, oh, you poor thing, type of sympathy. And there's the, well, he does have a point. Kind of sympathy, right? You can, I, I, I sympathize with that argument, but I'm not sure I understand blah, blah, blah. No. There's the intellectual, there's the emotional oh, sympathy. Which kind of sympathy is this talking about? Which kind of sympathy did the angels in heaven have for Lucifer? I have no idea. <laughs> I can't tell you. If I were going to guess, I'd say probably both. Does it matter? Which is worse? To feel sorry for someone, Jesus wept at Lucifer's woe, right? Or to think that the guy's lies might be true, which is worse? I like this because it tells me something about God. Because God knew all along that angels were sympathizing with Lucifer. Angels in heaven were sympathizing with Lucifer. But God also knew that even though it might have been balanced pretty close in some cases, they still had enough faith in God to trust him rather than Lucifer. That's that's all that made the difference. Some angels left heaven. Some angels stayed. The ones stayed said, I I can't explain this whole situation. This is a mess. This whole rebellion thing is a mess. I don't understand it. But I trust God. And the others said, this whole thing's a mess. I don't understand it, but, but you know, this is crazy. I'm going with him. That's the dividing line. Righteousness is by faith. Salvation is by faith. Justification is by faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Faith's kind of a big deal. Well, okay. We're talking progress here. That's two-thirds of Lucifer's arguments. Yeah, there are still three down there at the bottom, aren't there, though? Huh, look at that. Those three items are still on the table. Those three items have extended the reign of sin for the last 2,000-odd years. Why? Because responding to those final items requires the revelation of yet another categorical categorically distinct aspect of God's wisdom and love it's a different thing what Jesus dealt with was apples but now we've got oranges all the other murders those were apples but Jesus was an orange don't don't, don't carry that nothing against apples nothing against oranges I like them both I'm just saying there's a categorical difference and if we don't understand the categorical differences we will be confused okay Why didn't Jesus take care of everything when he was here? Well, in one sense he did, but in another sense he didn't. I am not going to have the time to give you documentation on this. You can read from Desire of Ages 490 and you can get this thought, or or better yet, hunt up a series of talks by Pastor Cameron DeVasher, um, lightning from Heaven, I believe, was the title. I'm sure you can find him somewhere, YouTube or some such thing. Um, great series of talks. But maybe you can follow this outline. God's work in stepping through this great controversy situation breaks down nicely into four stages. At Lucifer's original fall, 6,000, give or take, years ago, the members of the Godhead understood Satan's plans and arguments and rejected them but nobody else could see and understand. 2,000 years ago at the cross, angels and unfallen worlds understood Satan's plans and arguments and rejected them. But on earth we were too stupid. Sometime in the near future, I hope, the 144,000 will understand Satan's plans and arguments and will reject them and will give evidence of that rejection by their actions. But that still leaves another group. And God is thorough if God is anything. And a thousand years later, the wicked will understand Satan's plans and arguments and will reject him. And at the end of the millennium, Lucifer will be singing a solo, and no one will be adding any harmony. That's industrial strength, peer pressure. He will have been rejected by every intelligent being in the universe. God is thorough, if God is anything. Okay, well, just looking at that, that breakdown, and again, you can, you can get that basic idea off of a single paragraph in Desire of Ages 490. Look that up, or better yet, find Pastor Cameron's series. Um, now, just taking a look at it, you can obviously see where we're at. We're in between 2 and 3, right? <laughs> Jesus finished stage 2, which means, of course, that everyone in the entire universe is waiting for stage 3. Oh, uh, yeah. What's the holdup here? Well, it may have something to do with human beings being involved. Just a guess. Every eye in the unfallen universe is bent upon those who profess to be Christ's followers. Here, in this atom of a world, an earnest warfare is going on. A battle in which Christ, our substitute and surety, has engaged in our behalf and conquered. Great! But there's something really weird in this paragraph. Look at that first sentence. Why in the world would that be? I mean, the rest of the paragraph goes on to say that Jesus did the cool stuff. Wouldn't you rather watch reruns of a great program rather than have six billion channels of garbage? Why are they watching us? Well, it's because they know the plan. The sentence goes on, or the paragraph goes on. Now we, Christ's purchased possession, must become soldiers of his cross and conquer in our own behalf, on our own account, through the power and wisdom given us from above. The influence of the cross of Calvary, the revelation of the character of God, is to vanquish every earthly and spiritual evil power. And we need to know the plan of the battle that we may work in harmony with Christ. The rest of the universe knows the plan. We're just running a little slow down here. We need to know the plan of the battle, that we may work in harmony with Christ. Well, the government of heaven was confronted with a daring rebellion, charged with gross incompetence, selfishness, dishonesty. Human beings fell into sin and were hopelessly lost. And heaven had a single response to both problems the revelation, the character of the Father. It was the whole purpose of Christ's mission on earth. And yet, now there is a call for us, God's purchased possession, to become soldiers of his cross. I want to understand that. I want to understand the plan of the battle. I'm rather sick of standing around and not getting into the war. You may recall the story back in the World War, no, not World War, Civil War. There was a General McClellan, who was the uh, I don't know, top general, whatever his title was. And he was very reluctant to go to battle. He kept training and training and drilling and drilling, and oh, right face, left face, front of the rear march. Oh yeah, we can march around the field all day long. We're pretty good at this. And after two months, Abraham Lincoln made a fascinating little comment. He said, If General McClellan has no real use for the army, I'd like to borrow it for a while. (laughs) Well, I'm in no position to be borrowing anybody's army, but I'd sure like to see the army get on with the battle plan. And that's where I'm going to leave you today. Uh, I do have a quick announcement after, after prayer. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father... We would really like to see your character clearly. That seems to be the remedy for every error of sin. We pray that that would be the remedy for the error of sin that has attached itself to each of our lives. We would like to understand the plan of the battle because we would like to be true, faithful, brave soldiers we would like to have trust and faith that even if commanded to take up a suicide mission, we would say, not my will, but yours be done. Father, we just pray that you will work in us and through us and through your instruction and through every opportunity that you have. Change something in our lives, we pray. So that we can get off dead center and start to march. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org/audio2021, or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.